Romans 5, verse 20. It says, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Just to back up a little bit for sake of review, um, we've all kind of been here, but obviously we're dealing with the, the book of Romans from Paul writing to the Roman Christians there. He says, I'm ready to preach the gospel. You are at Rome also. So he, he starts to, to, he said he's ready to preach the gospel. He says, for by the gospel, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But then he gets right into the bad news. Verse Chapter 1 and verse 18, he starts the bad news. He starts dealing with with sin and, and our brokenness and our fallenness and our total depravity that we have in Adam. And then we've seen in that chapter 3 and verse 21 is when he finally gets to the good news. So he spends two chapters just breaking man down to verse 20 where he says every mouth will be stopped. And in verse 21 he declares the gospel. Verse 21 and onward. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Christ paid for our sins. We trust in Him and we're saved. You're justified by that alone. And in Romans chapter 4 we dealt with, um, He gave us a picture of Abraham. Because just in case you thought, well, somebody else, the old covenant, they're, they're justified by the works. He goes right to Abraham. Your father, right? That's what He goes to. He calls him your father. He's your forefather. He's the one that you as a Jew always point back to. We have Abraham as our father. Well, Abraham wasn't justified by the law either. He was justified before the law ever existed. And then we've been in chapter 5 here and we see the fruit of justification or the results of justification by faith. And the first thing we saw is we have peace with God. We have a real peace with God. Before justification by faith alone, you are at war with God. You are an enemy of God. And once you have entered into Christ, you have peace with God. Why? Because of our union with Christ. Because just as what I read from this morning, just as Charles Spurgeon said, like everything that Christ accomplished is ours if we're in Christ, through our union with Christ. And then we've been dealing with that extensively since verse 12, right? Our union with Adam, Adam as our federal head, and our union with Christ, Christ as our federal head. And then we get to this verse and it says, The law entered that the offense might abound. That's the first point here. The law entered that the offense might abound and death reigned. Again, death reigned. Again. Volume 3. But before we get into this verse, we, we, we have to remember what Paul's been dealing with with justification by faith alone. The fruit of our justification and our union with Adam and Christ. You can't take these two verses right here and just pull them out of the context and not deal with the rest of the chapter. These two verses are in the chapter. So we must remember that correctly, that he's dealing with our union with Adam and our union with Christ to correctly diagnose what Paul is talking about here. Because it sounds like he changes the subject. And what Paul is doing here is something that he's done before and he'll do again. And he's being a good teacher. He's anticipating your argument before you even make that argument. He declares this truth and he knows what are you going to say and he deals with it. But this is the argument. 
if because of our union with Adam, because of Adam's sin, we're guilty before God, and because of Christ's righteousness, we're made just before God, why the law then? Why did God give us law? If, if because of Adam's sin, I'm guilty, and because of Christ's righteousness, I'm made just, what was the point in the law, Paul? That's the argument. And Paul gives us an explicit answer. There's a, actually a, a, what they call a hermeneutic, our, our method, our science of interpreting the Bible. And, and it's one that t tells us that we interpret the implicit by the explicit. Y'all know what that means. That means if there's a verse that you go to and it seems to imply something that is contrary to what is very clear in Scripture, maybe that it doesn't imply what you think it implies. We interpret that verse by what is very, very clear in Scripture. Like we know that it's very clear in Scripture that salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone, apart from works. So if you come to any text in Scripture and you think, ooh, this verse must be teaching salvation by works, you're wrong. If you go to, and that, many people do that with James chapter 2, do they not? If a man say he hath faith and have not works, can faith save him? Then they go, well, see, it has to do with works. Or, now what do you do with Romans chapter 4? That says this, now to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that, count, that, that justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. What do you do with that verse? Those two verses are at odds with one another if you interpret them that way. We interpret the implicit by the explicit. And this text here is clear. It's explicit. The law entered that the offense might abound. That's what it says. It clearly says that. It says, in one of the other translations, says, the law came in to increase the trespass. And another translation, it says, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. Can it be any more clear than that? Paul, could you make it any more clear for me? Why did the law come in? Well, the law came in so that sin might abound. So someone asked you, why did God give us a law if we knew we couldn't keep it? I'm not sure you've heard that question before. Why would God give us a law that he knew we couldn't keep? Well, Paul tells us why. That sin might abound. So, there was still sin before the law, right? Before the law came, there was still sin. And Paul has already proven that to us in Romans chapter 1 and verse, uh, or Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, where he says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into, sin entered into the world, who was that one man? Adam. By that one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And death had passed upon all men, for all have sinned. That was before the law, right? So there was sin before the law, but the law came in, entered, that the offense, that sin, might increase. I think the Greek word here for Cain or entered is telling here for us. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 4. And we're going to see another picture of this word here. Galatians 2, 4. It says, And that because of false brethren, unawares brought in, 
who came in privately to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. Does anybody have a NASB or ESV? Yeah. Will you read that verse 4? Yet it was a concern because of the false brothers secretly brought in who had sneaked away in to spy on our freedom, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to enslave us. Do you see the, the picture there? There was false brethren that crept into the church. They, it says in the ESV, they sneaked into the church. It says, it says in the KJV that they, 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 they came in privately. They, they came in alongside the church, right? Let me ask you, what must have had existed in the first place for false brethren to sneak into it? The church had to exist, right? If there was no church, they had no place to sneak in. So the church was already there in Galatia. The church was already established, and false brothers were coming in. And it wasn't like they were sneaking like you think when you watch like spy shows or something like that. They came in looking just like us. They didn't have the spy music, you know. They had the spy music going on. They just came in just like us. They looked just like you and I. Actually, they may have come in looking like your your grandmother or your grandfather, looking all nice and sweet, but have heresy. But the church had to exist. The church was already there, and these false brethren came in. This gives us somewhat of a picture of what Paul is meaning in chapter five, verse twenty of Romans. Sin already existed, but the law came in alongside it. Sin was already there. Sin was there from Adam all the way up to Moses. Paul's already proven that to us. But the law came in at Moses. It came in alongside. Just as heretics came in alongside the brethren. That's what this means. It has a prefix of para. Para is the word, and it means to come alongside. That's what happened. Sin was already there, going along humanity, and the law came alongside it. So in other words, sin was already there, obviously, and Paul's already proven that in verse 12, and the law came in alongside of it, alongside the sin that was already there to increase it. But this doesn't make much sense to us in our Christian culture today, does it? Would God do something like that? According to our culture today, God, doesn't God simply just want to save everybody? Isn't He desperately trying to? Isn't He sitting on the throne crying His eyes out because you won't come to Him? <laughs> That's kind of what our Christian culture tells us, isn't it? That God wouldn't bring in the law to increase sin. But that's what the text says, and it's explicit. The answer is God is not trying to save everyone. And we would do well to bow to the scriptures in this, and not our current culture. We bow to the scriptures when it comes to what we learn and what we know about God. Before we see why God gave the law that sin might increase, let's look in another section in Scripture that will show us this as well as another truth about the law. Turn right up to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 18. 
It says, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more promised, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serves the law? It was added because of transgression, till the seed come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scripture has concluded that all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up, unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Why then the law? It says it was added because of transgression. When, until when? Until the seed come. Who, who is the seed? We already dealt with this, right? The seed is Christ. Christ was Abraham's seed. That's what it's talking about. That's the promise. The promise was made to Abraham that your seed would multiply more than the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. That was the promise. He said your seed. And remember Paul says in Galatians there, not seeds as many, but seed as one. And that seed is Jesus Christ. That was the promise. And it says the law was added because of transgression until the seed comes. So when Christ came, the, the law, what did he do with the law? He fulfilled the law, right? We're talking about that Mosaic law. Are we under that Mosaic law anymore? We're not. We're under the law of Christ now. We're in the new covenant now. He fulfilled that law in our place. And sin had already existed from Adam. The law came from Moses to... John the Baptist. Then Christ came in alongside the law and alongside the sin. But let's think about this real quick. Was the flood, the, the earthly flood, was it before or after Moses? I know that, you know, the little trick question people ask is like, how long did Moses take to build an ark or something like that? You know, that little trick question people say, well, I don't know. Like Moses didn't build ark. It was Noah. Was the flood before or after Moses? It was before Moses, right? It was well before Moses. God destroyed the earth with water before the Mosaic law was even given. What does it say in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5? Before the flood, it says, And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is before the law existed. Every imagination and thought of the heart was evil continually before the law ever came in. <clears throat> so let's make this very clear. Man was not good before the law was given. Man didn't just have a sin here and a sin there. Every thought and imagination of his heart was evil continually. He was completely evil. He was totally depraved. Back then, just as they are now. Completely sinful. Even before the Mosaic Law was given. So how did sin increase? That's the question then. What? 
If, if they're evil continually, how could you increase sin? Well, they had more sins. Because of ceremonial and judicial law, right? You give them more laws, you break more laws, you have more sins. <clears throat> Let me add this too, this as well too. That the law was good. It was a good thing that God added these laws. They were given for a reason. And that first, that reason was not so you could keep them to earn your salvation. That reason was to keep Israel, Israel, and safe and secure until the Messiah would come. Until, until we could celebrate Christmas, right? The Messiah would come forth out of Israel as an Israelite. If the Jews would have intermingled with all the pagans and become non-Jews anymore, the Messiah wouldn't come as an Israelite, would he? So the laws were given to keep Israel Israel. Sometimes they did intermingle with those other pagans. What, what did God do when that happened? He killed them. So the law was given to keep Israel, Israel, and safe. So the Messiah could come through that lineage. So he would be the seed of Abraham. So he would be the seed of David. But in giving it, more sin was added. More sin was added because of that law. And we can actually see this even in our day. Just in adding laws to your family, but the government adding laws. The more laws you get, the more you break. people break them, right? So more sin was added. Not that they are more sinful in their being, because they are completely sinful, but that they disobeyed more commandments. Not just one. How many commandments did Adam have? One. He broke that. Not just ten. Not just the ten commandments, but hundreds of commandments now. And they broke all of them. And they continued breaking them. Until the seed come. Let's also note what Paul says in Galatians there, that the law is a tutor or a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. That's a good thing, right? It's a good thing that someone is led to Christ. And why are we led to Christ? Because when you look at the law, you look at something that you can't keep. You look at something that you can't obey. When you're looking at the law, you see something, I can't do it. Therefore, we need someone who can or has in my place because I can't do it. The law shows our need for a Savior. It can save none of us. It increases sin. It, it, it makes sin abound because we cannot keep the law. And if you remember the message a few weeks ago where I mentioned that sin multiplies, that's what the law does. Law brought about sin, and sin multiplied. Sin abounded. It grew. It increased. One sin will lead to another, and to another, and to another, until your death. And if you look at the law, that's what you'll get. It will increase your sin and lead to your death. It's literally called the ministration of death. The law. Before we move to the next point, I want to just know something else about these texts here in Romans. They're, kind of, they're parallels. 
verse 20 says, Law entered and sin abounded. And verse 21 says, Sin has reigned unto death. Verse 20 says, Grace abounded. And verse 21 says, Grace reigned through righteousness unto eternal life. So sin abounds and reigns unto death. And grace abounds and reigns unto life. Eternal life. That for, first portion though is one we've been dealing with for quite some time. The law brings about sin. And it reigns unto death. We've dealt with this. This is third, at least the third time I've preached on this. Sin and death reign in Adam. That's what we could say. Sin and death reign in Adam. That's the fundamental truth of Christianity. And that's been Paul's point since verse 12. Or, like I mentioned before, that sin and death reigning could have been the whole point from Romans 1.18 to Romans 3.20. We can see sin and death reigning. We can see our union with Adam. Because that's all we see in Adam. That's what we see in Adam. If you're in Adam, that's all you're going to see. Romans 1.18 to Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. The wrath of God being revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Sin and death abound in Adam. Our next point here is Christ entered that grace might abound and reign. Just as the law entered, remember the sin was already there and the law entered and sin and death abounded. The law came in while sin was already there. Christ entered even while there was law and sin. So you have sin and then the law enters and then you go down the road, you still have sin and law and then Christ enters. Let me tell you this, this is one of the big differences in Christianity and other false religions. Apart from the fact that Christianity is true and false religions are not true, is God entered into the world in Christianity and was brought under the law. The law that He gave, He entered into flesh under that law. No other religion says that. Look at Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made un under, the, under the law, to redeem them, that we're under the law, that we might receive the adoptions of sons. That means to be subject to. He was, he was made of the woman, made under the law. He, he came in of the woman under the law. God didn't set aside His law, but rather came in under it and fulfilled it. That's the difference. That's the difference in our religion and, and, and the other religions. Is God actually came in and made Himself under the law. He, he subjected Himself to that law and kept it. In almost all, all, all other false religions, they either set aside God's law by not holding men accountable to it, or they teach that man must do good works in order to have eternal life. Both of those are sitting aside the law. Christianity does neither. God didn't sit aside His law. He didn't lower His standards of His law, but came, born of a virgin, born under the law. He had to obey the law perfectly. Not just most of it. He didn't just have to come, come in, made of a woman, made under the law, and almost obey all the law. You know, maybe I'll, I'll obey most of it, but I'm not going to obey that part or this part. No, he obeyed every single, as, as they said, what's that in Hebrew? Every single jot and tittle of the law. 
What does that mean? That means he didn't just obey big words in the Hebrew, but he obeyed the John and Tittle, which were just a, like an apostrophe. Just a, 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 little, a little notch. He obeyed those two. He fulfilled those two. Everything. And he did it. That grace, grace might abound. Just as we just sang. His mercy is more, right? That's the only way that grace abounds. That's the only way that grace abounds. Is if God comes in and fulfills the law in our place. It abounds because God kept the law in your place. And died in your place. As though he broke every jot and tittle of the law. Like you did. Then rose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father. Right? Then lavishes us with grace. Then he pours out his grace upon us. Do y'all remember when I preached from verse 17 there and it spoke about the abundance of grace? How it was, technically it was super abundant grace. Or heaps of grace. Remember that? Well, this is the same word, but more intense. And I, Now, in English, I don't even know how to make it more intense. How can it be more intense than super abundant? I don't know. That's what we, we use super to, to make it more intense, right? It's the same word with the prefix which intensifies it. It makes it stronger or even more. The verse 17, the word there could be translated surplusage. Y'all know what surplus is, right? What surplus is, right? So you have enough. You have enough food, but then all of a sudden you get a surplus of food. You get some more. Well, this is like a super surplus of food. This is not just, you know, maybe you say that the, the, the teaspoon is enough. The tablespoon is abundant, right? And then the heaping tablespoon, as I used, was super abundant. Well, this is not, 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 not like any of that. This is like a heaping dump truck on top of you of grace. Not just a little bit, not just enough, not just super abundant, but hyper, super abundant grace poured out upon you. Why? Because he fulfilled the law in your place. And he died in your place. And he rose from the grave in your place. It's there because Christ kept the law. Not simply just because he pours out his grace, but because Christ kept the law. There's those that teach that God is gracious to whomever he wills. And we agree with that to a point. He's gracious to him, whoever, whoever he wills that the Son died for and rose for and ascended for and is making intercession for. Those are the ones he's gracious to. That's the means by which God is gracious, gracious to us. It says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So by grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? Well, we are, are obviously have already dealt with Romans chapter 3, verse 24. But redemption there means to pay a ransom in full. Or to buy back. That's what it means. Who's the ransom paid to? When Christ said, I came to give my life a ransom for many, it was paid to God. The ransom was paid to God. 
You sinned against God when you broke His law. So a debt was owed. You earned a debt when you broke God's law. An eternal debt that you can never pay back. No matter how many times you obeyed the law after you broke that law, you still owed a debt. And what's the wages of sin? Death. That was your debt. You owed God your death. An eternal death because you broke an eternal law. Jesus Christ paid that debt by His blood. How could, how could he, a man pay my debt because he was infinite? Because he was the eternal son. So he, he could pay my eternal debt because he was the eternal son. So when he laid down his life, he made an eternal payment. That's redemption. And that's how you are justified freely by his grace. That's it. And nothing else. You think to add anything to that? You're, you're starting to step towards heresy or false gospel. Adding anything to it makes it not grace. And I mean anything. But the, don't I have to be baptized? Yes, you should be baptized if you're a believer. Don't I have to do works? Yes, you should do works as a believer. Don't I have to come to church? Yes, you should come to church as a believer. But what about my sanctification? Doesn't that add, add grace? No! Nothing! You add anything to that grace, you have no more grace. And we'll, we will see that later in four or five years when we make it to Romans 11. You add one ounce of human effort, it's like adding rat poison to your drink. It's not just water anymore, is it? If you have a cup of water and you just put a little bit of rat poison in there, it's not just water anymore, is it? Wife poisons her husband. <laughs> no, it wasn't poison, it was water. Man, you put rat poison in it, but it's still water. You just drink water, right? No. It's not just water anymore. Your grace is no longer grace once you add a little bit of human effort to it, right? Once you add those works to it, it's no longer grace. It's filthy rags. And it, when, we, when we're talking about this grace, it's not just grace. When we think about grace, we think about just, just normal grace. But it's that hyper, super abundant grace that has passed our comprehension. You cannot comprehend fully the grace that has been shown to you. You maybe can a little because you know your sins. You know, I, I know my sins. And you know that Christ died for you. So you can understand some of that grace. However, let me ask you this. Has God ever pulled back the veil and shown you a glimpse into hell? Because that's what you're owed. That's what we're all owed. If God pulled back the veil and just showed us a glimpse into hell, maybe we'd understand grace a little bit more, right? Have you ever seen the glories of heaven? Has he ever pulled back that veil and showed you the glories of heaven? If he had, maybe we would understand that grace a little bit more of what Christ earned for me. Maybe one day we'll comprehend this grace. But I'll say, while you're here, it is past our understanding. It's a grace that we can't see replicated by a finite being. No matter how gracious you are to another, it pales in comparison to the grace that has been shown to you by God. 
And if you don't think so, you either don't understand your sin, you don't understand yourself, or you don't know God. One sin has earned eternal judgment, infinite judgment. One sin. Who here only has one sin? Anybody here only committed one sin in your whole life? I'm sure there's not enough paper on earth to write down all the sins I've committed. Yet they're all paid for. Every single one of them. Every single one of them is paid for. Not just one, every single one of them are paid for. Even the ones that I haven't even committed yet. Even the ones that I haven't even thought of yet. You know those sins that you think of and then you go ahead and do it. I ain't even thought of those sins yet and Christ paid for them. Completely. Perfectly. And He's given me perfect righteousness and holiness. You know that, Christian? You stand before God today perfectly righteous and holy. Perfectly. But I still sin. Yes, you do. They're paid for. Christ paid for them on the cross and He's given you His life in, your, in, in, in place of your sins. And you are counted as just and righteous and holy before God. Perfectly. So we can repeat with the, the Apostle Paul when he says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, he says, But of Him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, He that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Christ is our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He is it. Not you. Not me. And he also says in Philippians chapter 3 and verses 8 and 9, he says, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss, all things but loss, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dumb, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Oh, if we could just echo those words, right? If only we'd understand how far we've fallen. If only we could understand that, we would understand grace even more. If only we'd comprehend how bad our sin actually is, we would understand that grace even more, that superabundant grace. We may repeat those words on a daily basis if we did. We may sing this song with Hannah in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 2 where he says, He raises up the poor out of the dust and lifts up the beggar from the dunghill to set them among thieves and to make them inherit the throne of glory for the pillars of the earth of the Lord's. And He has set the world upon them. He will keep the feet of His saints and the wicked shall be silent in darkness for by strength shall no man prevail. He raises up the poor out of the dust and the beggar out of the dunghill. That's you. That's me. He pulls us pulls up out of that. I always say the, the muck and mire of our sin. He pulls us up out of that. The, what, what was it? Uh, Pilgrim's Progress, the slough of despond. He pulls us out of the slough of despond and cleans us up, right? And sets us among princes. Why? Because you're so great? No. Because of what Christ has done for us. This is what grace does to somebody. 
And it's not just a normal grace, but that hyper, super abundant grace that surpasses our understanding. That's the grace that's found in Christ. And it's not earned, but given by God to those that have had their sins paid for and embraced Him by faith. Which leads to our last point. Christ entered that grace, grace might abound and reign unto eternal life. Now, obviously, I could probably preach 100 messages just on the words eternal life. I don't think y'all have time for that today. So, no, I cannot cover every facet of this. Jeremy, you left out something about eternal grace. Yes, I did. Or eternal life. Yes, I left out a lot. But let's look at the surface of it. It's called eternal life. Grace might abound and reign unto eternal life. It's called eternal life. Not temporary life. Not finite life. Infinite life. The word eternal is defined as without end. Never to cease. Everlasting. Indeterminate as to the, the duration. We all knew that, though. I didn't have to give you a definition. We know what we're saying when we say eternal. Right? This word is almost used exclusively of eternal life in the New Testament. That life that we have in Christ Jesus. It's only used in one other sense that I saw. Can you guess that other sense? Eternal fire. So you have eternal life and eternal fire. So... Pardon my language here, but we don't have a language to really define it. The length of time in heaven is the same length of time in hell. Now, obviously, I say we don't have a language because the time doesn't exist anymore when it's eternal. But the length of time in heaven is the same length of time in hell. Eternal. Without end. Never ending. There's one difference between the two, though. Eternal fire begins when you leave this earth. When God says, your time is up, eternal fire starts. Eternal life begins when you believe upon Jesus Christ. Let me show you a couple verses. Turn to John chapter 17. Verse 3. John 17, 3. The work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Okay. The only reason I had to read it ESV because it doesn't really matter, but it, KJV says life eternal. ESV says eternal life. It should, I think, should be translated eternal life the way that it is. 
But it's what we're dealing with is eternal life. I just didn't want to confuse anybody. Eternal life begins when you know God. And this is life eternal. This is eternal life that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou have sent. That's when eternal life begins. And it's not this comprehensive knowledge of God like we need to know everything there is about God. Because we'll never know that. Isn't that an amazing thought? All of eternity, you can spend all of eternity studying God and you will never know everything about God. Why? Because He's eternal. And we're not. But it's not talking about this comprehensive knowledge about God that we must know everything about God in order to be saved. It's talking about an intimate knowledge of God. A loving knowledge of God. The moment that you enter into this relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. And turn back to John chapter 5. Verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that hears my words and believes on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. You hear, you believe, you have everlasting eternal life. That's it. And is passed from death unto life. You notice that's a one, that's a one time thing. You pass from death unto life. You don't pass from life back unto death and death back unto life. Every Sunday you got to do an altar call and come up here and get your and get a new life. No, that's not what happens. You're passed from death unto life. You have been given eternal life when you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the verse I love to quote from John chapter 11 it says, And whoso lives and believes in me shall never die. And then he says, Do you believe this? Is that you? Do you believe in Him? Do you know God? Do you have that intimate knowledge of God? Are you resting in Him for your eternal life? That's the call, right? That's what we're all here for, right? Believe on Him for eternal life. And that life starts now. Eternal life starts now. You believe on Him now, you have eternal life now. However... This life here, where that second law of thermodynamics, that everything tends toward, towards chaos, or everything everything's headed towards death, will end one day. This life here will end one day. The sin-cursed earth is not our home. Though we are born again and pass from death into life, our eternal home is after the consummation. It's after all enemies are put under his feet. And that last enemy, which is death, shall be destroyed. When is that? Jeremy, when, when is that? I don't know. Nobody does. And we ought not to speculate. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll go there. Fifteen, verse twenty. 
It says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by one man came death, and by one man came also the resurrection of the dead. Does this sound familiar? Does this sound like Romans chapter 5? By one man came death, by one man came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall put down all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. That's the consummation. When you say, what, what's the consummation? That's the consummation. When all things are... Are, when the last enemy is destroyed, which is death, all his enemies are put under his feet. They become his footstool. And then the last enemy which is to be destroyed is death. That's the consummation when it says he shall deliver the kingdom up to his father. That's our great hope, right? That's what we want. That's what we long for that day. That's why we serve him now. We don't deserve eternal life. We deserve to die in Adam, but we've been made alive in Christ forever. What a great way to end this chapter by Paul, right? In Romans chapter 5. What a great way. Yes, Adam's sin brought about death, and all those in him died. But Christ's obedience brought about eternal life to those in him. And all we can say at the end of the chapter is amen, brother Paul. Let's serve our risen king, right? Let's go to our application portion. First is our call to repentance. So you've been sitting here this whole service and still wondering, do I know Him? Do I really know God? Do, do I have this eternal life that you've been speaking about? Now is the time to repent and believe. You ask, what must I do to be saved? Look to Him who has super abundant grace. Look to Him who fulfilled the law and paid for sin. It's not about what you can do, but about what He has already done. Will you face eternal fire or eternal life when you pass? That's a great question of humanity, isn't it? Will you face eternal fire or eternal life when you pass? Well, for the former, the answer is easy, right? Just do nothing. Do nothing. Just, just go about keep living your life how you're living right now. Keep chasing sin and having a deaf ear to the call of God. That's easy, right? Just keep doing that. And you'll go right off into eternity, right into eternal fire. You'll perish one day. And today could be that day. And when you perish, you have no excuse. Paul has already told us that. Every mouth will be stopped. There will be no excuses before God on that day. You have heard the gospel. You have heard about eternal life. You have heard about this super abundant grace that is found only in Christ Jesus. And you turn to death here. Thinking, oh, i got plenty of time. Oh, I'm not that bad, am I? One sin is too bad. One sin. 
And when I asked the question, does anybody in here only have one sin? Not one hand went up. Because we all know. One sin is too bad and your life is but a vapor. It will be gone soon. Repent and look to Christ. And to those that do know Him, if you're struggling with sin, it's time to turn, right? He has superabundant grace. Grace is better than your sin. We just sang that. And we're going to sing another song about the same thing. Our, His grace is better than our sin. Sin abounds, but grace superabounds. Yes, you still sin. And yes, you will still sin. But grace superabounds. Your sin won't and can't damn you, nor give you any condemnation. Your condemnation is gone in Christ. Completely gone. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1. No condemnation. We all know what that means? No. None. There's none. No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So don't let sin win in your life. Repent of it when you fail. Look to Christ. And remember, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Even those heinous sins that shouldn't even be named among us. Grace has taken them. But Jeremy, won't that make us want to sin more? Well, let's stick around. Paul answers that question in chapter 6. Not stick around today, but I'm not wanting to chapter 6. Listen to this. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this. If your preaching of the gospel of God's free grace in Jesus Christ does not provoke the charge of some from some of antinomianism, you're not preaching the gospel of God's free grace in Christ Jesus. What's that mean? Antinomian is the one that, that believes there's no law. And now I'm saying there's no law. I, I don't have to obey. It doesn't matter. There's no more law. That's what anti means no, and namas is what means law. There's no law. There's law. <laughs> but the gospel sounds like that, doesn't it? What Paul just dealt with in Romans chapter 5 sounds like that, doesn't it? Justification by faith alone, apart from the law, without the law, sounds like that, doesn't it? He deals with it in chapter 6, like I said. It's free grace. And is given in Christ Jesus apart from your works, without your works. More like in spite of your works, because your works are bad works. So as Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 2, he says, This only what I learn of you. Receive you the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? In other words, quit looking to yourself. Oh, you think you're going to perfect yourself by looking to yourself? No. Look to Christ. Look to Him who is full of grace and truth. The second part is called war. First, I got an A and D on this. First is kill sin. This is a battle against yourself. Your heart. 
It's not a battle. I don't need to kill your sin. <laughs> Matter of fact, I can't. It's you kill your own sin. This is a battle with your heart. You can't allow that old man to rule your life. You know that old man, that one that God brought up out of the dunghill, right? You want to jump back in the dunghill. Don't do it. You've been given new life in Christ, and He's called us to a life of obedience. And I don't mean just not doing certain things. I, I don't do that. I don't do that. I don't do that. I mean also doing certain things. Fighting against those sins that are expressed outwardly. Those sins of commission. Those sins that violate the moral law of God. Fight them. To quote an old philosopher, Socrates. He says, know thyself. But well, that's just simple wisdom, right? Know thyself. Brethren, you know yourself better than I know you. I know myself better than you know me. You know your sins and shortcomings better than anybody else. Be honest with yourself. Protect yourself in those areas that you fall in. Protect yourself. Nobody, we, obviously we try to come alongside and protect one another, but sometimes I, you don't know my sins. You don't know what I struggle with. And I don't know yours. Protect yourself. Fighting or war isn't always about every single battle going in head, head on in every single battle, is it not? Had every single war that's ever been, do you think every single battle they're just like, let's go? No. Sometimes it's like, I'm not fighting that battle. I'm going to go this way. <laughs> Sometimes it means to run. The Bible actually gives us a little picture of this. You know the scripture that it speaks about Satan and it says, resist the devil and he will flee you. Resist the devil and he will flee you. Well, it, isn't it interesting that you can resist the devil and he will flee you, but it says in the face of fornication, flee. It doesn't say resist it. It says flee, run from it. You can resist the devil, but you can't resist that. Flee from it. There's the battles that you don't fight. You run from them. And you know those battles. I don't know those battles in your life. You know, I'm going to struggle and I'm going to give in to this sin. Don't go there then. What they call, um, many preachers call radical amputation when Christ said, if your right eye offend thee, pluck it out. If your right hand offend you, cut it off. He wasn't talking about going literally plucking your eyes out and cutting your arms off. He was saying, if there's something in your life that's causing you to sin, get rid of it. Get away from it. You do like Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Remember that story? What did Joseph do in the face of fornication? I'll just hang out for a little bit. He ran and left his coat. Sometimes you might need to do that, right? I'm leaving my coat. I don't care. You can have a coat. And then she used it to set him up and put him in prison. But at least he didn't get in, give in a sin, right? And that's one that knows from years past addiction very well, too. If the Lord saved you out of a drug addiction, it's probably best not to go around with it, right? 
probably best not to go, well, I'll just do one little bit. Just, just, just a little bit, because you know what happens then? Right off the, right off the end. I did that with smoking. You know how many times I quit smoking cigarettes and then started smoking back cigarettes again? I quit for three months and I smoked one. Back to a pack a day. But best to stay away from that. But those fights get easier and better, don't they? I'll tell you like this, I could quite easily sit in a room full of people doing drugs and it wouldn't tempt me at all. But you'd be asking, Jeremy, why you sit in a room full of people doing drugs? <laughs> I use it to make a point. Fight sin, but know yourself. To know when it's better to just run. To retreat, to live, to fight another day. Second part to this is, if you have eternal life, you know the blessing. You know the blessing of eternal life. You know it now, here, right now. You know when the Lord saved you, how you felt, right? Yeah. When, when you walked outside and it was just like the air was different and the sun looked different and, and the trees and, and everything was so much different. And you were like, I feel alive because you actually were alive. You know that. And you know today still. When you could just take a walk and be overwhelmed by the goodness of God and His creation. You could just look up in the sky and be in worship. And you know that you can look back at that old life, if you call it life, and realize that was a different person. That was not me. That was a different person. That was a different life. Because I wasn't alive, I was dead. What happened? Why were you changed? Because you heard the gospel and believed upon Christ. So why not preach it to someone? Why not, why not preach it to somebody that's close to you? Just one person. Just one person. Say, just one person this week. I'm going to do like my F3 guys say, hard commit. I'm going to commit and I'm going to do it. One person this week I'm going to preach Christ to. Can you do that? Who you, I'm sure every single one of us that has a neighbor or a friend or a family member that does not know Christ. How long did it take to preach Christ to somebody? Two minutes? I, I can do it way faster than that. But Two minutes will give you... Two minutes. In this whole week, I had to look this up. 10,080 minutes this week. That's what we have. 10,080 minutes this week. Two minutes to preach the gospel. Is Christ not worth that? That's our calling. Christians. Let's take forth the gospel this week for His glory. For there's super abundant grace found in Christ Jesus there. And we want people to have that. Do we not? Amen. Amen.